Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. I'm Robert A. Wilson with Cowboy Wisdom Visionary Vitality. I'm a hypnotherapist, NLP practitioner, and I'm also uh, with Cowboy Wisdom Radio. And Ron Lee Geigley is my guest. Ron is the author of The Woods, grew up in the Pacific Northwest. He was born, born in Monroe, Washington, attended Menadale Senior High School. After graduating from the University of Washington, he headed to Washington, D.C., where he has spent the past 30 years as a speechwriter, congressional aide, and public relations consultant. He worked for Washington State Center War Magnuson, and U.S. Representative Norm Dixon founded the public relations firm Poladeus. I'll let him clear that up. You learn a lot about people over many years, says Ron. And you learn a lot about politics. It is always a prize to me, despite all the years in D.C., what those two forces do to one another and not necessarily in a good way. Ron makes politics a central part of his novel, The Woods, which tells a coming-of-age story setting story set during the, a period of labor unrest in the Pacific Northwest during the late 1930s as the nation emerges from the Great Depression. Both haves and haves not struggle for financial survival and, more importantly, to achieve their dreams in the face of adversity, danger, and political ambitions. Ron won fiction, write, non, won fiction writing awards from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. in 1997 and 98 for two chapters from his novel. I'm going to introduce Ron, and then we're going to allow Ron going to read you two paragraphs of the book so we set the tone for the show. Welcome to the show, Ron. Thank you, Rob. It's great to be here. I love it. I appreciate the invitation. Well, this is my honor and privilege. We get to learn, we get to really show some people some history of the labor <laughs> movement and how it plays out today. So, would you please read right. two paragraphs of your book? I will do that. And uh, let me just say, as before I do that, uh, that as Rob said, this this book is uh, focused on uh, the uh, the time in the uh, Pacific Northwest, the late period of the Great Depression. Uh, and it's about people dealing with the hard times, dealing with a very difficult time as the economy kind of fell apart. And the book, it talks about a lot of things, but one of those things is uh, you know, maintaining one's dreams and one's hopes uh, in the face of such adversity. So I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs uh, that try, kind of set up the set the stage a little bit for how devastating the Depression was. I mean, we all learned about it in... In, in high school and so on, and grandparents, perhaps parents, w- went through it. Uh, but this gives you a little bit of a sense uh, in this logging community that I describe in the Pacific Northwest of, uh, of what that was like. And we're speaking here of uh, Bud Cole, 
he is one of the main characters of the book, and uh, he is the owner of the Sky Billings Logging Company, which uh, he is absolutely set on making a success despite his past failures. Bud Cole saw how so many men, successful men, some who owned their own logging shows, collapsed on the inside when the economy collapsed around them. A life of hard work, a life with a foundation of a job and a place in the community created a comfortable order and certainty for a life, even if that life always stood within a whisper of death from a flying cable or a loose limb in the woods. In an odd way, sudden death was part of the order of working in the woods. You knew it could happen, and you thought about it, and you prepared for it best you could. But the economic and financial deaths so massive and widespread as the Great Depression clawed deep into a man's soul. It came on so fast, just a hint of trouble to start, then it blanketed every business in town. Jobs ended, then companies closed, families moved to find new chances, but the foundation had been split and scattered. The beliefs that with good skills and common sense, with good training and earnest effort, a man could control his life had vanished. So there you go, Robert. Uh, Rob. This gives you kind of a sense of the, the deep devastation of that period and the impact it had upon lives and upon the psyche of people. You know, back then, when they when you went to the woods to work, and well, you know, in any facet of life back then after the 30s, my parents grew up in the 30s. But Ron, I've got to ask you this question, and then, but you know what you write in the woods, and it's available on Amazon.com, and anybody wants to talk to Ron, it's the call-in number 718-305-6548. But you know, Ron. The hard work in the logging and, you know, the poverty, the the challenges that, how do you really see the poverty, the challenges of the 30s still play out today in some way? I just, well, you know, it's, right. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Rob, uh, because as I was writing this book, and, and mind you, I took, uh, I worked on this book for the better part of 20 years, so things changed a lot in my life as well as the life of the United States and the economy of the U.S. But I think that when you look at what's happening today and you look at what was happening then, as described in, in the novel, there's a great deal of similarity. I mean, you had both in the Depression and then here in 2008 this tremendous economic uh, jolt, kind of a seismic shift in many ways uh, that threw a lot of people out of work that threw people into a quandary about some of the most fundamental things they had always assumed about their lives, about their pensions, about you know what they would be facing financially in the coming years were kind of tossed out, and they had to, to reformulate and they had to proceed. Um, you know, again today you have in part because of this tremendous economic shift, which is global, and it was global at that time too. Uh, you know, you've got an awful lot of people who are in the sort of have and have not categories. I mean, I, I don't want to revisit the last election, but this whole issue of the 1%, the people who are, you know, well-established, who have, uh, you know, able to operate in the world of stocks and bonds and international finance and things like that, 
uh, are doing well, whereas there are an awful lot of people, working class people, people who have worked with their hands and their backs, the kind of people who uh, you know, tap, take showers at night uh, to clean off the dirt versus showers in the morning before they put on the white shirt. Those people are having a very hard time. And I think that uh, you see some of the results of that uh, is uh, w- w- the results you see of, of that now is, is some of the results you saw back in the Depression. I mean, uh, there was a real move toward unionization uh, in the uh, in the middle of the depression, that was facilitated by government policies that allowed unions to organize, and you can see it today. I mean, if you look around, you know, w- whether it's fast food workers or it's teachers or it's car plants in, you know, the south of the United States, people are looking at unions to try to bind themselves together to give themselves some protections to deal with the world where they feel very vulnerable. And, and, you know, Ron, the world is still vulnerable, but back in the 30s, they didn't have the laws of today. That was more of a kind of a mono-mono, up-front, in-your-face trickery and stuff going on in the woods them days. And how do we not really hear of the the real undercurrent of all the small battles, I guess you want to say, mm-hmm. in the woods to get what they got. Well, you know, it's, um, I guess I'd start, let me give a, start with a, just a little bit of history. Uh, the um, Pacific Northwest from the very early days of the 20th century, the early 1900s, say 1905, uh, was kind of a hotbed of, of radicalism. Uh, you know, there was a the development of the Wobblies, the you know industrial workers of the world, uh, that led to lots of attention. There was strains of communism um, and so on. And, uh, you know, that led to, of course, there was a world war in there. Then there was another world war with the Depression in the middle. And, you know, there's so much, how shall we say, there's so much life and so much history and so many things that develop in the course of a life or the course of a couple generations. You know, some things just fall away and they don't get much attention. And so to some extent, I guess, you know, kind of as an armchair historian, I believe that this very rich history in the Pacific Northwest, but also the West Coast, of uh, radical unionism, of labor activism, uh, has kind of gotten lost. I mean, we don't talk about it a lot. Uh, We don't remember that there were uh, incredible battles in the Northwest uh, to, to get union representation. There were battles which is what the Woods talks about in many ways, battles between the unions themselves as they came to different perceptions about uh, how they should be, how workers should be represented, whether those are industrial workers, people who work with their back, uh, or or tradecraft unions, people like carpenters who are more skilled. And I think that that has gotten lost. And uh, there are good efforts in the Northwest to try to give that currency and to bring it back. There's a you know, a website in the Northwest called uh, History Link, which is really, or history.org, I think. Hmm, I'm going I'm to get that wrong. Uh, there are also, you know, efforts at the University of Washington, the Harry Bridges Center, to really bring out this vital history. What I've tried to do is take this period of history uh, that is in about the late 1930s and show this period, not from the perspective of a historian, but to set that 
set a, a novel, set a, a fictional story into the middle of it to really bring it to life. Uh, Shelby Foote, who was one of the great uh, writers of the Civil War, once said, and he wrote fiction and nonfiction about the Civil War, he once said that you know, he felt like he could tell the most about what was happening during that era of the Civil War by writing the fiction, the novels, the stories, where he could get inside the heads of the characters and really give a sense of what he thought they were going through. And that's what I try to do here. You know, you said that about stories, but one thing a story does, when you say it's fiction, people unhook they're being attached to knowing something and you can actually get knowledge and wisdom through their into their subconscious with the story because they're relaxed. Yeah. And I mean, exactly. And one of the things I've done here is um you know, I we I I worked really, really hard, Rob, as you can imagine, over those twenty years, uh, to get the facts right in this book. Uh but I don't claim that this is his history. This is historical fiction. And and what I've done is I've created what I think is a very nicely paced plot, which I can summarize, summarize later or, or whatever, um, to really take the reader along on the journey of the characters. And I've been very pleased by it. Uh, we've gotten good reaction to the book, uh, some good reviews, although I would love to have more reviews. Um, and But a lot of people who I believe would not normally sit down and read about the history of the Union movement in the Northwest in the late 1930s, are reading this book and understanding about what went on, just as you say, through the means of a story that's pretty fast-paced, has a little bit of espionage, a little bit of sabotage, a little bit of politics, maybe a lot of politics, and a pretty uh, fast-paced ending. So they're really getting this story of their history and the history of the Northwest in a pretty laid-back and relaxed way. And also, there's a couple words I'm reading off of a, a blog you have. It's on uh, disappearing, plain, disappearing in plain sight, and it's got right. a picture of the woods. But there's a couple words here I think got me intrigued. The rigging okay. slingers and the whistle punks. <laughs> yes, well... I got to tell you something. Don't, you've just struck upon the two words that started me on this journey 20 years ago. Because my father, I, I grew up in the Northwest, as you said. Um, I grew up near Monroe, and um, and while this this valley that I'm writing about, it's called the Seacomish Valley, with a river running through it and logging all around it. It's not a replica of the Skykomish Valley, but it certainly got some hints of similarity. And I grew up in that area, and my father, um, well before I was born, had worked up in the woods as a young man. And so, uh, you know, as he got older and as these things happen, as one's life moves along, you spend more time with your aging parents. And about 20 years ago, he, he started telling me about working in the woods. And he was telling me about guys who were whistle punks and rigging slingers. And I thought, you know, I mean, I always loved writing, and I've, I've written professionally for a living, uh, read a lot of books, but those two terms caught my attention. What were those things? And so from that and asking him about that and, and learning about his experiences, 
I started developing the notion of wouldn't it be neat to write a novel about these kind of people and during that period and what they went through. And so, but coming back to the specific uh, words, um, a whistle punk is a person who runs a steam whistle up in a, a logging operation. And the reason you need a whistle punk or, or a steam whistle is because you drag the logs many distances, you know, maybe half mile sometimes, uh, to a spar tree. So there would be this big, tall spar tree in the middle, stripped of all of its uh, branches that would be rigged with pulleys and cables, and there would be a big winch, steam winch at the bottom. And these cables would be taken out way off into the distance, and they'd be hooked up to the, uh, to the logs. And sometimes those logs were out of uh, eye shot, of the uh, of the person at the running the uh, winch that would pull in the logs, and so there would be someone out way where the logs are, who would give steam whistle signals to the operator of the winch, as to when you know two signals might be okay. Loosen the you know it could be loosen the cables because we need to load the logs. Three whistles could be okay. The logs are loaded now. Pull them into the spar tree. And uh, this was all done out of sight usually. And so that's what a whistle punk was. And a rigging slinger was pretty much what it describes in a bit. It was the kind of guy who would be in charge of hooking those, those logs to that main cable, and he'd sling the rigging, as it were, up to the cable, the cable going to the main spar tree, they'd hear the whistle, and they'd start pulling on those logs. I might add that this is one of the reasons this was such a dangerous job. Uh, when you look at pictures of that era, I mean, these are men that are climbing under logs that can easily be 10 feet across, 12 feet across. Uh, and they're climbing underneath them, they're pulling cables underneath, they're hooking them up to a to the to the cable on the other side and then they're given the whistle and then those logs get pulled sometimes along the ground but sometimes way up into the air on what's known as the skyline and they go dangling these may be a you know half ton of wood hanging above you that's dangling along on that skyline getting pulled into the log the spar tree where that gets hooked then up to a railroad car and gets taken to the mill you know, and I'm I'm on Amazon.com where you can go to get the book, The Woods. It's Amazon.com slash Woods hyphen Ron Geigley. It's you can get it in Kindle and ebook. But you got something wrote in here on, on underneath there, blasting rail rays into the side of the mountain, scaling Douglas firs that tower 200 feet. That are the visions that draw an 18 year old. Albert Weisler to a job with the Sky Billings Logging Company. You know, walking out into the woods for the first time, that has to be quite mesmerizing. But but blasting railways through the mountains, the Cascade Mountains or any mountain range, that right. had to be intriguing in the 30s because they didn't have the detailed and all the things we have today. No, no, that was... Uh... That was, uh, you know, you had to be kind of a man's man to put up, to, to survive in that environment. And I, and I really want to emphasize that, that this book is about what's called railroad logging. So 
those once those logs got pulled to that spar tree, they got loaded onto railroad cars. And these were railroads that snaked along the ledges, maybe 500-foot ledges or 1,000-foot ledges that then dipped down into the valleys, back and forth down into the, uh, to the little towns. And sometimes they'd go to sawmills there, and other times they'd go on the railroad tracks all the way down to Everett or Seattle, uh, you know, Snohomish, places like that. And, um, you know, it took real hard work. It took blasting of uh, hard granite to get those rail lines up. And these are full-scale railroads. I mean, you know, this, uh, not that, these are just as big as the passenger lines you're aware of today. The railroad uh, engines were what they called, uh, you know, shays and, and, and so on. They were huge beasts, uh, steam engines, uh, and they pulled just the logs behind them. And so the job was really to get those logs onto the train and then to get that log of uh, that load of logs on the train, then down the mountainside. And sometimes these inclines were so intense you could have as much as 50 or 60 percent inclines that they had to build a railway on that they would let these logs on these cars down. Now. You know, the locomotive couldn't do that kind of an incline, but they had big winches at the top of these 60% grades, and they would let these logs on the railroad cars down inch by inch until they got to a landing and then took it down the mountains. And so, and my story, this is, I just want to assure readers that this is not just a story about the engineering and technical aspects of logging in the 1930s. Uh, you know, we got a story here, as you indicated there, about this young man who is just enamored with this idea. He's 18, and this idea of blasting these uh, rail lines into the into the sides of mountains and scaling these Douglas firs that were, you know, maybe almost as tall as a football field. This was this was magic to him. And you know, against the wishes of his mother, he goes to work in this environment and quickly understand how terribly hard this work is. And, you know, and it's kind of a story that starts primarily with him getting used to this world of hard work and great danger and getting adjusted to the very, very uh, uh, interesting uh, cross-section of loggers, uh, you know, in, in all their different forms and so on. Um, and getting used to that world and, and, and growing in it and kind of becoming his own man. You know, not only working was kind of, was very, you know, difficult, hard, but, you know, the undercurrent and all the infighting between the unions and the corporations, there was another aspect of working up in, them, up in, the, in the timber country that you had to look out for, and that's yeah. people with... Back then, they carried guns, and they were really willing right. to use them. Right. Um, historians, uh, I, I don't have the quote in front of me, but a couple of historians that say that, in effect, in the 1930s, mid to late 1930s, in the Pacific Northwest, uh, you know, the battle that went on between the established union, which was the AFFL, the American Federation of Labor, 
and the new upstart union, which uh, was designed, it kind of grew out of the loggers themselves because they felt that the, the AFL represented the skilled carpenters, but kind of ignores them. But the, the historian points out that this is one of the most violent labor battles uh, that ever occurred in the United States. And people did die. And I mean, when you look at some of the headlines during that period, and one of the things that, uh, you know, one of the things that I did in the research is, you know, we looked at lots of uh, resources from that period, lots of scholarly journals, lots of materials from the time, the newspapers from the time. I mean, I got a headline here from the New York Times, uh, June 2235. Uh, it's from Eureka, California, actually. One slain, ten shot. In strike rioting, five policemen and ten other persons are also injured in the Eureka, California fight. And so, yeah, there was a lot of violence up here. And one of the driving plot elements in my book is that, and I don't think I'm giving too much away to the reader, but um, this book starts out with a train crash that's up there in the mountains. And the question is, why did this happen? And it turns out to be an act of sabotage. Because what's happening here is you've got a union leader trying to create this new entity called the CIO. I can't remember the exact configuration of what the word said at that time. It changed a little over time. It's basically the Congress of Industrial Organizations for the loggers, sawmill workers, and they were fighting the AFL. And they were shutting down the sawmills, and they were shutting down the logging operations up in the mountains. And there were pickets, and there was a lot of violence. And uh, that is very much a part of this story, as this young man, as well as a couple of other primary characters here, here try to make their way you know, during this period of the Depression and hard times, as they chase their dreams uh, in this very volatile environment, I guess I'd call it. And, you know, that's back when, you know, ganging up, fighting one-on-one was very common back then, you know, because it was just a rough time. But, you know, the thing is, that was a bunch of hardy men with a bunch of stamina. Women had it, too, because... They didn't know what was going to happen when they when the man left the house, but that was a no. real hearty bunch of people at that time. Don't you feel wrong? It was, and um, you know, I have always been. Uh, I mean, I've always loved books, fiction about working people, and um, you know, one of my favorite books is uh, you know, The Grapes of Wrath by by John Steinbeck, also set. You know, obviously during the Great Depression, and and actually my book was published 75 years almost to the month after the Grapes of Wrath was uh, was was uh, published, and we you know I pick up some of the similar themes, and one of those is that I mean you know it's it's not unlike the kind of thing we just went through recently with you know the invasion of Normandy, D-Day, that that was a time when people put their lives on the line. And they in in the case of the invasion obviously, they they did it for the greater good. And in the case of 
the 1930s and working in the woods. And this is true of people who are still working in the woods, and you know, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and so on. You know, to make ends meet, you had to take those jobs. You know, to make ends meet, if you're a fan of the you know grapes of wrath, to make ends meet is that family that was dislocated in Oklahoma. You know, moved to California. They had to work in the fields. They had to take the jobs that were available. And certainly that was the case in the Pacific Northwest during that period of time. There were a lot of people who couldn't find jobs. There were people riding the rails. There were families riding the rails. I mean, there's a huge shanty town in the south end of the, uh, you know, the, 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 the piers in uh, Seattle in the harbor. And, you know, so getting a job like that was critical. You had mouths to feed. You had your kids. So you took those dangerous jobs. And, you know, one of the things that was always known in the woods about how, you know, men wanted to be men. <laughs> there was something called the hurry up. And this is something the Wobblies fought against in the in the teens out there. But But it was still an issue in the 30s and 40s, and that is, you know, trying to get as much out of the workers as possible so they'd do the hurry-up. They'd push them harder. And it's, you know, one of the scenes that was very common in the Pacific Northwest, this is, you know, to the west of Seattle, you know, to the west of Everett, out on the, out on the peninsula. This is true in Oregon. This is true in Northern California, is that, you know, these guys would often run across the logs that were, you know, already f- f- fallen to, to get to the next piece of work. You know, they would. These were guys who would get on both ends of a big saw, and you know, these 12-foot firs were very hard to bring down. And these guys kept sawing. They'd eat their lunch while they kept sawing. They'd eat their sandwich with their left hand, and they keep sawing with the right hand. And these were dangerous jobs. Uh, one of the things I grew up with, as I, you know, when I was a kid up there in the in the 50s. You know, you went to, I mean, this this sounds very harsh to say, it was just a fact, you went to a lot of funerals. And you went to the funerals of family members and people in the community because a cable broke or a limb came down, took out somebody's life. And so these were hard jobs. People worked hard. You know, I've worked 38 years in Washington, D.C. I think I've worked hard. There are many days when I have said, you know, I'd love to do something other than sitting at a desk and dealing with all this political BS. But I'm telling you, it's nothing like being out there and using your arms and using your muscles and using your legs and going home at night and being... You know, Ron, you touched on a subject. How is this country afraid to get dirty to get back to being wealthy again, do you feel? I mean, well, working with I, your hands and the physical yeah. labor. Because, Ron, we don't build things. That, we don't craft buildings. We just flat build them with just throw it together. We used to craft yeah. them when I first got in the union. Do you yeah. feel that's kind of all slipped away and stuff like that? What's your feeling on that? Well, I don't think it's all slipped away. I, I think that as a society, and I include myself in this, you know, I think as a society, we've gotten very accustomed to having things our way. I mean, you push a button, you know, you get conveniences that people have never heard, never, ever expected before. Uh, you know, you can carry around a mini computer, which is called, the, you know, an iPhone or a BlackBerry. I mean, who would have imagined that even 25 years ago? Um, so I think that we have gotten a bit lazy. I think we've also gotten a bit complacent. There's a piece in the Wall Street Journal, I think it was this morning, and they were talking about a very insightful column 
um, about globalization, uh, you know, a sort of a sense of alienation. Um, and I think we've gotten used to as a society, you know, we're, we have been the leaders, uh, you know, technologically. We've been leaders, uh, you know, e- economically. You know, we've had the resources, and the rest of the world's been catching up. Well, you know what? The world has caught up. And because of information technology, uh, you know, financial resources can, can zip around the globe in seconds. Money can be invested in different places quickly. The people who, the job that was secure in Milwaukee or in Seattle or in Bremerton or in Savannah, Georgia, is no longer secure because somebody else somewhere is probably going to be able to do it cheaper. So I think that, you know, there is an element among us in America where we feel like, you know, that's not right. That's not fair to us. Well, you know what? It may not be fair in the sense of what we've had in the past, but it is a reality. And I think that, uh, you know, high-tech expertise and knowledge is vital. It's vital in terms of manufacturing industries. It's vital in terms of, you know, you take in your car, they're going to do a computer diagnosis on it. But I also think that working with your hands, you know, working on the land, working the land. I mean, you know, uh, when you think about the, uh, I draw this comparison to uh, uh, the Grapes of Wrath. And, you know, people in Oklahoma, in this particular case, hit by the Dust Bowl, they made their living off the land. And they moved to California because they felt they had been told that, you know, there were great opportunities there. And they tried to make their living off the land there. Same is true in the Northwest. Well, there wasn't as much migration. There was some of it. And there, too, people were living, you know, trying to make their living on the land. And I think to some extent we need to be doing more of that. And I think that we need to, you know, respect and encourage these kinds of crafts and skills that are very – and sort of – essential to America, essential to the kinds of things we create. I mean, when you find out, and this is sort of jumping far afield, and some of these very precious rare minerals that are critical to various engines and so on are only available in, let's say, China, because we've kind of decided, oh, we'll get them from China. We're not going to worry about it because it's too hard to get here. Uh, it reminds you that maybe something's going on that we need to be aware of. And, you know, the blue-collar worker uh, you know, the hard worker with his hands, the person working with the back, you know, all those people, I might add, who service when we go to the fast food places, you know, they too need to have, uh, you know, some degree of kind of a bottom line in terms of income. You know, they need to be able to make money there. And we need to be able to have the skills as a society to do the basic things that are necessary, not just the high techy stuff. And, you know, that's absolutely right. But, you know, something, you hit on a very, very, I grew up on a farm. You know, we went to corporate farming. Back when I grew up, you know, everybody had three, 400 acres. It was a nice-sized farm. We've got from the smallness that made us big. Do you feel that, Ron? Yeah, I, I think that's right. And part of it is economies of scale. Part of it is the changing nature of, of global trade. Uh, part of it is the, uh, you know, uh, uh, person's looking at a set of bills and you're saying, well, now what am I going to do? I've got a big corporate farm organization or, you know, you know, a, a seed company or, a, you know, a, a fertilizer company that's giving me an offer. You know, am I willing to fight all these headaches? And that can be headaches from 
<laughs> you know, re- paperwork, bureaucracy, you know, difficulty getting loans. It can be even things like, and this is one of my hot buttons, and this is getting totally away from my book, but, you know, the student loan situation. People are coming out of, you know, they want a college education, which is good. I support that. But, uh, you know, they come out with some very heavy loans, and they say, you know, where am I going to get? Where am I going to work? You know, doing a farm may not be what I need to do. I need to go to the city and, you know, get the higher bucks, or I need to, you know, move to Europe and get the higher bucks in some sort of, you know, big pharmaceutical company or something like that. And and the other part of that, I think, in America, uh, you know, I've got a daughter who's 18, and I'm very proud to say she's going to be attending the University of Washington in Seattle, even though we live on the East Coast. I'm very proud of that. But I think that America needs to get back to encouraging trades, elect, you know, electrical work, uh, you know, plumbing, uh, you know, working on cars, you know, m- m- you know, being a mechanic, the kind, doing farming, the kind of things where you know what you got to make stuff to live, you got to make stuff to eat, and and I think we've lost a little bit of that. I hope we get back to that. You know, and that's absolutely. Ron, I'd love to have you back because you really talk about something that I've I've been pushing entrepreneurialism on this show for, for four years now. Uh-huh. And it's people getting back to work and doing what they can with their own talent. And right. ain't that what the the woods is about, showing people that have the courage to give right. a better quality of life to the world we have today, but we've let it slip away? It really is. I mean, this is a book, if you we're going to sum it up, in a sentence or two, I mean, these, these, this is a book about people fighting for their dreams. And it's a hard world they're in. It's a dangerous world, you know, but it's a, just a classic American story about people who, despite the adversity, they fight for their dreams. They don't give up. Their dreams are transformed. They are transformed, but ultimately, you know, their dreams are serious business, and they run after them. And I think that's right. I think that's a critical piece of this book. It's a critical piece of what we need to do as a country. And, Ron, we've run out of time, actually. Okay. And the book is called The Woods by Ron Lee Gagley. And it's right. available on and you can just go push in, uh, you can push in search Ron uh, Geigley in the name probably, is probably best I G L E the Woods. Right. What's that wrong? Right. Probably best to put in Ronald Geigley G E I G L E and you'll also be able to get it in virtually all the platforms out there and you can get via Amazon also a a copy, uh print copy and soon uh, in your bookshop, book Edmunds bookshop down in Edmonds, for example, is the most recent store that's carrying it in the northwest area. Oh, we gotta ask one question. You grew up in Moreau. Monroe, is that about as pretty as it gets? It's pretty beautiful up there. I'm telling you, they got that Skykomish River going through there right next to the park. And uh, you go further up that valley and you get Index and Skykomish and you get the pass. Monroe's a beautiful area. Uh, I love it, yeah. but unfortunately I've been away from it for many years. And I recognize it now. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. You know, I was there about 10 years ago, and it, it looked pretty different then. <laughs> it's really different now. It's really expanded. Ron, thank you, and the book is The Woods. And we're going to have Ron back because the working people need a voice, and they need to understand they can live a different way if they choose. 
Thank well, you, Ron. I appreciate and the thank opportunity, you all the Rob. listeners. All right. Thank you so much. And, and everybody, well, good night, and we'll talk to you Thursday night. Bye-bye. And we'll see everybody later. Good night, Ron, and all the listeners. Thank you. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.